0: Um let's revisit our presentation from yesterday for a few moments and uh, I hope uh, to flesh that out and dig in a little bit more to uh, faithful presence within uh, today. Uh, but yesterday we had uh, three uh, blocks of material that made up the session uh, and the first one is this schema or diagram diagram uh, trying to capture what, for me now, is uh, is the way to do life. We're deeply engaged, uh, inevitably so, sometimes naively so, in the uh, culture's uh, worldviews, used as deep culture, that which is shaped and formed, uh, assumed and taken for granted about cultural artefacts and language. Doing education in the 21st century, uh, and that engagement is what we explored somewhat yesterday, uh, but we do that out of a deep immersion in the shape of the biblical story or the account or narrative or revelation of God's Word, which culminates uh, in Christ uh, and gives us the grounds, uh, the way, the path from which we walk in and out of uh, into the 21st century. And so we embrace this uh, counterformational immersion meets engagement which means that we're fundamentally humans who believe in a dialogue between the word and the world, uh, and there's a contention which causes, in Newbegin's terms, unbearable tension for us. Uh, and so we're living as people of the kingdom of God, and yet we're in the world. We're Philippians in the first century, or we're Australians, or we're in our places and times. And we find that there's a tremendous amount of work to be done to be counterformed out of tension and dialogue as immersion has authority over engagement rather than uh, the other way around. Uh, Now, this, of course, means that we're always interpreting or reading the times of which we're a part and the scriptures for the times of which we're a part. Uh, This uh, six-act drama uh, idea is well established now, but the one that has... ...largely disappeared from our reading is Act 3. We talk creation, fall and redemption... ...and so we can talk creation, fall... ...Genesis 1, 2 and 3... ...and redemption. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John and the New Testament. And so the question is what happens... ...when Act 3 is not part of the imaginative forming... ...text of Scripture... Uh, And some years ago, when I had the privilege of working on this at the doctoral level, I ended up saying that if we drop that out of our reading and attention, we get a different Jesus. And if we get a different Jesus, we get a different discipleship and hope. Uh, The Jesus that we get without this long history, which goes from Genesis 12 to Malachi in our current editions of Scripture, is a Jesus I characterised as... Westernised, individualised, modernised, minimised and sanitised. So we don't get a big Jesus. We don't get a Jesus who's a child of the family of Judah, who has a history that incorporates Rahab and Tamar and Bathsheba. We don't have a Jesus who strides out of that history. We have a Jesus who appears as a lone individual and we modernise, westernise, individualise, sanitise and westernize this Jesus and so we get a distorted Jesus and therefore our discipleship is under threat and our hope for the future is different. No wonder we end up with a triumphalistic gospel because we only pull out of Act 3 texts that are triumphant. The right psalms, the right proverbs, uh, the right imagery and, and not a lot else. So books like Malachi or Leviticus or Lamentations, the wisdom literature, the prophets, and the law—these uh, books lost to us—change our understanding of Jesus, and that changes this. So one of the things that we're doing in the Bible in the Belly, and certainly in EDU 400 in NIC studies, is rediscovering the significance of this for this uh, Act Three. Uh, disappearing Act 3 is a big problem. Uh, When I did research back in 2000 to 2003, uh, the only Old Testament texts which had much influence on the history of Christian schooling for teachers in terms of educational vision and practice uh, were selected Psalms and Proverbs uh, alongside Genesis 1 to 3. There, There wasn't much reference in any of the documentation to anything other than that. Uh, and uh, that was very problematical, I think, for a schooling movement which claims that the comprehensive scriptures are the foundation for our educational vision and practice. We use words like comprehensive scripture uh, and then we use pretty selective texts, at least uh, apparently so, in the literature. So that's a really important diagram for me uh, and I wanted to say that it's, it's immersion in this not just knowing about it or having a framework, it's immersion in this, which we'll talk about a bit more today, which shapes engagement with considerable tension. Uh, Secondly, we looked at uh, Hunter's four paradigms uh, and some responses to them, and we'll dig into this a little bit more today. But the domination, accommodation, fortification, incarnation paradigms, that's from Greg Thompson, defensive against relevant to purity from they all have strengths Uh, these aren't to be thrown out there are times when we're very defensive when we're wanting to be relevant obviously when being pure from is a great stance but the most embracive one uh, from scripture Hunter claims is the faithful presence within some people say the within word is the most important there in the three Uh, and those four uh, we explored yesterday uh, the two, uh, the domination, fortification ones, fundamentally are in oppositional stances to the world. And this one is in an oppositional stance to the church sometimes and certainly to the prophetic witness of the church in the world. This one begins with a love for the world and retains uh, a prophetic witness to the world. Uh, so this faithful presence within one really significant. And then we looked at Philippians 2 as our third and uh, a biblical-oriented portion of the session. And we talked about how uh, shaped this is by Paul's immersion in both the story of Israel and the story of Jesus. Uh, And then he's a participant in the story of the first century church, Philippi, in this case. And then he's seeing his own life in quite personal and emotional terms in verse 17 shaped by drink offerings and sacrifice, uh, participation with the first century church, uh, shaped by what he will say about his race, his life on the day of Christ. Uh, So there's four stories here. There's Israel, church, Jesus, Paul. Uh, And here is this uh, multi-layered shaping of New Testament scripture, which is always the case. Uh, And notice that we don't get here Quotation marks, uh, which give that to you. You've got to know that the um, the apostle assumes knowledge of Numbers and Leviticus and Exodus. The apostle assumes when you read grumbling there, that you go, of course, the wilderness years. Uh, there is this assumption that we're reading scripture quite holistically, and that we're seeing this unfolding revelation occurring in scripture. Uh, and so, the fourfold narrative that's in that text. That's the case in all scripture, and we just did one example of that um, yesterday. I want to um, dig a little more further into this today, but we won't still get to your schools. You've got to do that, and I'll I'll explain why I think that's the case in a moment. In uh, 2015, um, a Gospel Coalition book was published edited by Colin Hanson, you can find it on the web, called Revisiting Faithful Presence to Change the World Five Years Later. So here was a book uh, with uh, a group of scholars interacting with what Hunter had said. In his introduction, uh, Colin Hansen recounts a meeting with Hunter and interviewing him ...during which uh, Hunter asserted his view that we are living at a time of great rupture in world history. The end of one era and the beginning of another. Uh, Now, I don't think this comes out in Hunter's book particularly... ...but here is how seriously Hunter takes the moment in history in which we are living... Uh, And this is echoed in Steve McAlpine's blogs and and Mark Sayer's writings and the sort of material that you might read from an Andy Crouch around culture. Uh, This is what Hunter says about the moment of history in which we're living. He says, We have witnessed the end of Western civilization built on reason, Athens, and Revelation, Jerusalem, the work of Plato and Paul. We have witnessed the end, he says. Whether we recognise it or not, we're seeing the dawn of the age of Nietzsche, history without meaning, and the quest for pitiable comfort. The quest for pitiable comfort. Uh, It reminds me of what Schaefer said in 1983 or 4. He said the only two values left in Western society are personal affluence and personal peace. Personal affluence and personal peace. History without meaning, the quest for pitiable comfort, we don't realise how pagan we've become. This is Hunter speaking about the moment in history. Uh, The moment in history in which we live is dressed up in entertainment and uh, wealth uh, and triumph. And uh, so I wanted to start the session this morning by showing you an advertisement and asking you to form some little buzz groups for a few moments that we use in the Bible in the belly. Now, this is one of many that we could use. It's a Bet365 ad, and some of you will have seen it before. Uh, but it's, a, I think, a fantastic disguise of the end of history in which we find ourselves. Beautifully p- uh, presented, but very troubling once one digs into this ad. Um, as we say when we present um, belly in, Bible in the belly of the school, Um, make it an interest of yours to look at the websites of the companies and the uh, multinationals that put out these ads. Bet365 is an international online gambling company. It's uh, based in Stoke-on-Trent and was founded just in 2000 by Denise Stokes. It's a family business. Uh, Denise Stokes and her family have transformed Bet365 into a multi-million dollar business. It has offices in Manchester, Gibraltar, Malta, Bulgaria and in Australia, in Darwin I believe. Bet365 has 35 million customers globally in this online betting company. As an organisation they employ 4,300 people and so it's a major business in Stoke. It's grown into one of the world's largest online gambling companies. March 2018 showed amounts gambled on sports around the world at 52.56 billion dollars, uh, pounds, sorry, 52.56 British pound billion British pounds. That's how much was gambled. Revenues were 2.86 billion operating profit 660 million pounds. This is a huge company and they've got a raft of ads that you can watch and uh, here is one of them. Uh, If we can have good sound on this. Uh, I'll show it a couple of times and I'm gonna ask you to tell me the story that it's telling about being human. We are connected to some of the most advanced technology the world has ever seen. We can choose from over 100,000 live sports events every year. Just like that. We are members of the world's favourite online sports betting company. We are members of Bet365. Gamble responsibly. Yeah, so so the 1-800-365-365 number is followed by the gamble responsibly number. Uh, The first words are, we are connected. (laughs) We are connected to some of the most advanced technology the world has ever seen. We can choose from over a hundred thousand live sports events every year. Just like that. We are members of the world's favorite online sports betting company. We are members of Bet365. Gamble responsibly. I want you to watch it once more. Um, I want you to critique the language and the the backing soundtrack uh, and what you see as well. In fact, let's play it this third time without the sound. If Chris could turn the sound down. Uh, Just watch without the sound. I like watching these without the sound. It gives you a different focus of attention. We'll watch one more time with the sound. And then if you can form buzz groups, what stories are telling? What's the language that's being used? Uh, What's the hope being portrayed? What's it mean to be human in this ad? And then we might get a few feedback. We are connected to some of the most advanced technology the world has ever seen. We can choose from over 100,000 live sports events every year. Just like that. We are members of the world's favorite online sports betting company. We are members. Bet365. Gamble responsibly. Okay, have a chat with the person next to you and uh, see what you make of that ad. Uh, do some criti- critical work on Bet365 ad for about five minutes. Okay, let's uh, come back together again. We don't have a roving mic today, but I'd love to hear just from perhaps two or three people. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? What does it mean to be human? What story is it telling? What hope is there? What did you notice about language? This is the sort of cultural critique that has to happen as immersion shapes engagement, not just for ads like this one, and there's some fairly obvious stuff in this, but for architecture, for um, policy documents, for media presentations, for the shape of our cities and suburbs, for symbols that people wear on their necks, on their bodies, for our houses, for everything. Cultural critique is listening to the music, looking at the, the signs, uh, hearing the stories of the time and place in which we're part, and not letting them wash over us thoughtfully, thoughtlessly and naively. So can someone give us a quick resume? What did you see and hear? Yeah. Do you want to come up? You want to, you want to come up and do the rest of the... You know? <laughs> no, no. Thank you. <laughs> That was brilliant. (laughs) Um, Wow. OK, I'll just skip to the second half of the talk. (laughs) Thank you, that was a wonderful resume. And you've picked up on much of what I wanted to say and wanted to hear back, but uh, there there are other things, probably. So one other person, perhaps? Yeah. Thank you. Uh, And I'm sure there's many others who'd like to say something, but we've picked up on many of the aspects Uh, Let me make a couple of comments uh, about it, and I think we'll watch it one more time just to uh, bring home one or two more things. This is an advertisement about distraction, addiction and adrenaline, among other things. The language of connected and member, which was picked up for us, is great language, but here's a wonderful example of what Newbigin talked about language changes meaning when it's dropped into a different story um so member is in the biblical story a word that we use quite a lot interdependent body language in corinthians for example but in this story membership is anonymous uh, displaced um, common interest but no relationship Uh, it's male based it's adrenaline pumping and the heart is rushing towards immediate and addictive reward. Newbigan says that one of the things Christians have to do is subversively fulfil language. We need to take words like freedom and power and member and put them back in the true story of being human and fill them out in such a way that they don't mean what our current culture uses them to mean he points to John's use of the word logos in John 1, a word used by first century philosophers to mean a disembodied principle or an eternal idea. But Paul takes the language of the culture, the language of Greek philosophy, and then says the logos becomes flesh. And so he subversively fills it. One of the things we are doing as Christians who are counter-cultural or counterformed, is wanting to renew language, not give it up and not stop using it, but to bring it back into the fullness of meaning. This is an ad about power and freedom. Uh, It's an ad where people are living alone with their power through their phone or their screen, inattentive, possibly addicted to both the technology and the gambling habit. And isn't it interesting how in this ad, uh, gambling uh, requires no exchange of money, no sitting in um, card playing, dens with smoke and darkness. The whole gambling industry has become sophisticated in this ad. Sophisticated addiction, you might say, is what the ad is about. And the people in this ad, of course, there's no one here with disability, Uh, there's no children in the ad. Uh, These are people who have the power of material wealth and the time and opportunity to make it happen. I just want to show you what I think is the climax of the ad. It's this man on the balcony clapping his hand in the middle. This is the moment of reward. This is heaven in the ad. I have to do that again. We are connected. To some of the most so this is the redemptive journey, the as it were. Seen. We're on our way to heaven. We've got, a, we can got the Holy Spirit in our hand. We've got the transcendent presence of the year. Lord. This guy just like that is closer to heaven. There he is. he the got the world's world's reward. Online sports betting company. We are members of Bet 365. The hope in the ad is the clap, Gamble the adrenaline rush, the win, the reward. And on the balcony sitting by himself with his machinery, uh, that man is what we all want to be like. He's Jesus in the ad, as it were. Mark Sayers, in his book, Strange Days, Life in the Spirit in a Time of Upheaval, includes a chapter entitled, Non-Places, Prayer Closets of Individualism. Uh, We had a portion of an article about uh, this in CTJ, if you've seen it. Otherwise, get CTJ and have a look. In it, Sayers explores our retreat to non-places in the current swirling times of complexity, multiplicity and change. Uh, Citing an anthropologist named Mark Aug, Sayers affirms that places are to be thought of as characterised by history, relationship and identity. Uh, Our schools are places when they have at the heart of what we're on about a heritage, relationships and identity shaped by our educational purposes. Um, Sayers argues that locations become non-places when they have no and we're not connected to anything of history, relationship or identity. Prime examples, he suggests in our current arena, our shopping centres, hotels, airports, highways, sporting stadiums, where anonymity, non-relationship, non-identity are valued. He argues that these are the prayer closets of individualism. This is where we go to be with our God, with ourself, with our technology, with our reward. Any place can be reduced to a non-place, including neighbourhoods, houses and workplaces. He contends that non-places are places reduced for maximum individual freedom, shorn of the restrictions of binding relationship, covenant, externally given identity, living in relationship out of a heritage, and the responsibility of history. In non-places, we choose anonymity and pretense. We imagine ourselves as free to pursue multiple options without responsibility either to other people or to the place of which we are a part. The growing propensity to treat places as non-places even threatens the way we do church and school. It endorses individualism, narcissism, self-absorption, carelessness, distraction and disinterest. In this way, it's the complete opposite of faithful presence within. We might describe it as self-focused absence. Have you ever sat with somebody whose self-focused and absent to you you're talking away and you realize they're not interested (laughs) they're not even here they're elsewhere we can all do that self-focused absence is the opposite of faithful presence I want to go back to um, Hunter's model now for a few minutes and just flesh out five I think uh, deeper responses to it First of all, I I love the model of faithful presence within. I think it's really helpful. Uh, But some respondents uh, have found it too passive and lacking in embodied practices. Hunter did not give his readers a set of practices in which to engage. But others have pushed into that space and time since, and you can find plenty of literature where faithful presence is worked out for churches, for education etc but that is partly the point to give people a set of practices in the initial literature I think would have been contrary to what Hunter wanted to do and I think it's contrary to perhaps what we need to do as a movement here too those who are faithfully present need to work out where they are and what to do you can't import curriculum or technology or quick fix solutions from somewhere else because it worked somewhere else you've got to do the work we can all learn from and gain from other people's models and content but you can't just import it and drop it in as though it's the same faithful presence means walking and working and praying and listening and discerning where you are for your moment and what to do in fellowship with the Lord and your colleagues. There are no formulas or quick solutions. There is rather a prior responsibility to be present with the Lord, attentive to the people in the place God has put you with the task God has given you. In other words, to be faithfully present means do the work. We won't know what to do if we are not faithfully present uh, so in my own uh, life and in, in time uh, we recently moved to a new location living up in springwood in the blue mountains and it's the first time we've lived in the mountains and the first time we've been part of the springwood church the first thing we had to do and the first thing I did endlessly was walk the streets and look at the street signs and sit in the shops and drink some coffees and listen to the stories and pray with the Lord and look at the fauna and look at the flora and spend the time to become faithfully present I didn't know what to do I couldn't do in Springwood what we'd done down in Plumpton or in Auckland we had to work it out faithful presence means do the work not import the solution Nevertheless, I do want to give you what I think are five implications of faithful presence within which I think, I hope, are helpful to you. What are some characteristics of faithful presence as we dig down a little bit? The first one I want to say, uh, Hunter does say, I just want to push into it a bit more, God's faithful presence within the world is the reality we seek to imitate as disciples of Christ. We don't initiate faithful presence. God does and we participate in it. Our participation in what God is doing in the world is the starting point. We're faithfully present as witnesses and agents in the spirit of the risen Christ who is always faithfully present. God's faithful presence is a loving exhibition of covenantal commitment And in his faithful presence, there are three uh, prepositions, three words, which I think are really helpful in understanding what that means uh, in reality as we live out our faithful presence. The first one is that God is for us. Um, Romans 8 language, Christ is for us. He's on our side. He's for us. But to be for something can still be distant patronage. And so we also add the term, God is not just for us, he is with us, present, in relationship, spirit present among and within. He is for us and with us. But that is also not enough. To be with someone can be passive, disinterested presence. So alongside for us and with us, I want to add the words he is to us. He is intentionally to us for us, with us, and to us. That's the way to live. For, with, and to are the full shape of the covenant. God seeks us and attends to us. He finds us and renews us. He hears our prayers and attends to our groanings and our praises. Our faithful presence might be described in like fashion. We seek to be for with, and to God. We seek to be for, with, and to our neighbours, both friends and enemies. We seek to be for, with, and to the places and times in which God has placed us. We need to learn to love and critique the place we're in, not keep wanting to get away from it. We used to be in Mount Druitt for 24 years. We lived there in Hebersham in Sydney's West. And at the time we moved there, I uh, got appointed to Wayland High School. People said, oh, don't take that. You know, wait another year and get to Gosford or the coast somewhere. Well, we prayed about it and felt that the Lord led us to Mount Druitt. So we went to Mount Druitt and ended up staying there a lot longer than we anticipated uh, and learned to love the place as well as critique the place. But people used to have a saying in Mount Druitt. The kids used to say, the only time there's a... Traffic jam in Mount Druitt is at four o'clock when all the teachers are leaving because no teachers in Mount Druitt lived in Mount Druitt. They all piled up at the lights onto Luxford Road to leave to go back to Castle Hill or up to the mountains or wherever they actually lived. No teachers lived in Mount Druitt. They didn't love the place enough to want to live there or send their kids to Mount Druitt High Schools. We've got to learn to love and critique the places that we're in. So, this is what God is like, and this is what we need to be like. Secondly, faithful presence within the world can only proceed out of immersion in the scriptures. So, I want to talk a bit more about immersion for a little while. Immersion in scripture is not an end in itself, though, in itself, it is most worthwhile and wonderful. Um, When we talk about worldview, we often talk about the narrative of Scripture as being our bottom line. Well, that's actually not quite right, I don't think. The narrative of Scripture is the bottom line to a relationship with the speaking triune God. The bottom line is the speaking triune God. We, we, We read Scripture because we know the Lord through Scripture, or if we read it unfaithfully, we don't, and then the Scripture is abused and misused. Immersion is not an end in itself, it's the grounds from which our minds and imaginations are renewed, our habits and practices are formed, our obedience and love is shaped, and our devotion to Father, Son, Holy Spirit and the gospel of Christ is secured. Immersion or indwelling is so much more than knowing about the story of the Bible or having a framework such as creation, fall and redemption from which to think. I know I'm immersed in something when it has taken hold of my heart, imagination, desires and will. So what practices must we develop if we are to live immersed in the scriptures? Well, I want us to think about a whole body immersion in the world of scripture. Not on my own, but in a community of like-minded others with whom I can have, then, rich dialogue and prayer. When we talk about immersion, we're not talking about sitting with a lamp and studying only, though that's incorporated. We're talking about practices, for example, of listening, reading, memorising, meditating, praying, chanting, arting, poeting, cartooning, mapping... We're talking about breadth and depth studies, projects and assignments. We're talking about study and play. We're talking about loving and obeying this hope-filled, joy-giving, life-flourishing Word of God in relationship with the triune author and one another. We're talking about being in the world of the Word as much as we are in the world of the 21st century culture in terms of influence and authority. This kind of immersion, or reading, used in a wide sense, acknowledges the kind of literature that the scriptures are. And that is something that is at threat of being lost at the moment. There's a lovely section in theologian John Webster's book called Holy Scripture. I'd really recommend that book to you, Holy Scripture, by John Webster. You've got to read Webster slowly, uh, but his books aren't really long and he's just a delightful author. In his book, he discusses what it means to read Scripture. And uh, here's what he concludes, uh, just one portion uh, out of what he says. I forgot to put it up, so I'm just going to read it to you. Reading Scripture, he says, is best understood as an aspect of mortification and vivification and by that he means that when you read scripture you die to self and live in christ to read scripture is to be slain and made alive he says because of this the rectitude of the will its conformity to the matter of the gospel is crucial here's the key bit so that reading can only occur as a kind of brokenness a relinquishment of willed mastery of the text and through exegetical reasons, guidance towards that encounter with God of which the text is an instrument. The art of reading, slow, purposeful intent in reading is passing us by. Tony Reinke's written a book called uh, 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. Well worth reading. Bit of a chucky title, but but it's a really good book. And one section of his book uh, argues that we are one generation away uh, from knowing how to read the Bible. He makes the point that the Bible will be the hardest book we ever ask a young person to read. It's long, it's multiple, it's translated, it's ancient literature. It's hard to understand. It's historical. Uh, And skimming and information gathering won't get you into a relationship with God if that's the way you think you can read Scripture. Immersion in Scripture, Webster says, can only occur as a kind of brokenness, a relinquishment of willed mastery of the text. It's sitting under the voice of god speaking in scripture it's dying to self and living in christ it's an act of mortification and vivification there's a word that we should rediscover an act of mortification and vivification i was reading numbers last night and i was thinking here i am mortified and vivified as i read about the numbers of israel's tribes Sometimes that's hard to get to, um, but it's something we need to work for if we're going to be faithfully engaged out of immersion with Scripture. This is where it begins, and God's Word then infuses all of life, including worldview formation. Thirdly, faithful presence within the world necessitates an affirmation, of uh, an embrace of both affirmation and antithesis. Ken talked about this last night, and it's quite wonderful uh, towards our cultural times and places. Uh, Affirmation. Fundamentally, we are people who celebrate truth, goodness, and beauty in our cultures and times and places. Fundamentally, we get out of bed in the morning with gratitude. We are so thankful that the world is governed by a God of holy goodness, We recognise that the creation is wondrous in its testimony to its creator, sustainer and redeemer. As such, we must continue to nurture practices of awe and celebration as we live in the world. Seeing Michelle and family standing in that wide shot, was it? The um, Grand Canyon. The wonder of God's world is something we must never lose hospitality celebration song joy sport i mean all of these are affirmations of the great and good world in which we live the paradigms described in terms of defensive against and purity from downplay affirmation they reflect opposition not embrace of the world as the place god loves but affirmation is met by antithesis, just as in Kuiper, common grace is met with antithesis. Antithesis means that we are deeply troubled, that we reject, we critique, we stand against the distortions and corruptions of God's world. And so while we nurture hospitality, joy, singing, we also nurture. ...grieving, lamenting, prayer, silence, groaning and rest... ...which are absolutely significant practices in the face of real evil in the world. Here is the tension going through each day affirming and critiquing... ...celebrating and weeping, loving and despising what is happening in the world... And only Christians will do this because of our redemptive vision in Christ for the hope of new creation and for God's redemptive work at the cross in Jesus. This is a considerable embrace. Read Walter Storff's Lament for a Son. For example, the book he wrote after his young son, his 21-year-old, I think was killed in a mountaineering accident, and see how he both loves the world and hates what's happened to his family common grace and antithesis is a significant aspect of the tension we willingly embrace and faithful presence can't continue without it if we don't learn to grieve well we will burn out and end up early if we don't celebrate well we will become cynical and overwhelmed perhaps by the sadness of the world we do both It's great to have friends who help us to do both. The friends who love to celebrate and the friends who help us to lament. Point four uh, is really important for me. Faithful presence within the world is not practiced so that the world will change, though we pray and long for that. We are faithfully present within our world as an act of worship, to the one true God. It's the Lord's work to change the world, and so we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Hunter makes this point when he says, if there are benevolent consequences of our engagement with the world, it is precisely because it is not rooted in a desire to change the world for the better, but rather is an expression of a desire to honour the creator of all goodness, beauty and truth, a manifestation of our loving obedience to God and a fulfilment of God's command to love our neighbour. I remember speaking with a a wonderful woman who was a student of ours in Laidlaw. Um, She had a doctorate. She'd come from Iraq. Uh, She'd fled as a refugee and uh, she was just devastated by what was happening to the church in Iraq, which has ancient, ancient roots. Sometimes there are no benevolent consequences that are evident in a moment in history, but that's not the reason for faithful presence. We don't give up when we don't see evident fruit of faithful presence. We don't complain, God, I've worked i've tried i've strived i've prayed i've done everything i can and no one's coming to the youth group all the ministry is not growing faithful presence is not rooted in a desire to change the world it is an expression of a desire to honor the creator of all goodness beauty and truth a manifestation of our loving obedience to god and a fulfillment of god's command to love our neighbor that takes so much pressure off i believe And helps us just to rest in the sovereign and surprising grace of the Lord. And here is Greg Foster's uh, remark in response to Hunter at this point. Christian influence on culture occurs not primarily by human design, although human designs are involved, but by God's invisible and supernatural use of the suffering perseverance of his people. ...in their positions of public stewardship in all domains of culture. Greg Foster is one of those who wrote in the Gospel Coalition response five years later on. For what do you take responsibility? And for what do you trust the Lord? We do not build the kingdom. We are witnesses, agents, signposts, all of those languages. We are witnesses of the kingdom... God is building by his spirit. We trust faithful witnesses. The Lord is responsible for the world. We are responsible for faithful presence. Can we let go? Can we rest in the sovereignty of God as we work hard at faithful witness? And finally, robust counterformation happens in faithfully present communities and here's where I think uh, there is so much to love about this movement. We've got school communities, uh, parent communities, boards and teachers and parents working together in places all over the country and robust counterformation needs those communities in which it will occur. We will not sustain the dynamic of counterformation by working alone The biblical vision is always that such change occurs as we live and breathe accountability, vulnerability, wise, incisive friends and colleagues who know us deeply and hold us to gospel living. Uh, Bonhoeffer is probably the best person to read about this because it was so urgent in his day to be courageous in community and so I'd certainly recommend his books to you. Hunter, when he turns his attention to educational communities such as schools, asserts that such communities change as teachers work with parents, administrators cooperate with local government officials, and religious leaders consult with business owners. He sees the community dynamic as working very widely. All have power, he says, to enact change, but they can accomplish a great meal more together they can separately stronger together greg thompson in his response to hunter asserts we must work with the twin goals of forming faithful christians individuals but then unleashing them as creative institution builders in all cultural spheres producing cultural artifacts and having influence in cultural institutions such as schools and places of decision making in communication with councils and governments and builders and technicians and so forth. Broadly faithful, present communities are the context in which counterformation will occur. Take that uh, back to your schools and uh, associations uh, and boards and work it out as faithfully present in your times and places. I want to just finish by saying how encouraging I think this moment is that CNN and NIC find themselves in. Uh, the opportunities are enormous. The challenges are enormous. Uh, but our faithful presence within, with a heritage now of 40 years uh, and with some wonderful foundations that have been put in place, uh, is unique in Australia and around the world, as we heard from Ken and others last night. There is something quite marvellous about what God did Uh, In the 50s and 60s through the 70s, as ice commenced into nice, as we find ourselves here now, seeking to be faithfully present in 2019 and beyond. So let me pray for us. Father, we're sobered by the challenge of the moment, but we're excited as well. And we cast all of the burden of that, or the responsibility for that, on your sovereign, gracious, loving, redemptive shoulders. Thank you that your arm and your hand and your finger are powerful and present. As we read throughout Scripture, you come down and you stay and are faithfully present in the world, seeking us out and loving us sacrificially, that you are for us, you are with us, and you are to us. So help us in an age of distraction and addiction to be faithfully present for, with, and to the world of which we're a part in the places you've put us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.